Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to lead us in the reading of God's Word and restrict that reading uh, to the first eight verses, which will be the focus of our attention this Lord's Day. Again, that is the book of Romans, chapter 4, the first eight verses. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, Righteousness, apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're in a fresh chapter. In the first three chapters, we stood inside a courtroom. We are now exiting, let's say. We are now leaving behind us uh, the courtroom. This might be your first Sunday with us, and so let me explain briefly what I mean by that. Uh, Simply as follows, that as we studied the first three chapters, we imagined ourselves standing in this courtroom where we were on trial before God. And as we studied these first three chapters together, we heard the accusation that was brought against us. All suppressed the truth. We heard the testimony against us. All are without excuse. We heard the verdict pronounced by the judge himself. All are under sin. And we heard that dreadful sentence. All, everyone, all are the object of God's wrath. Depressing scene, which grew slowly brighter the closer we drew to the end of the third chapter. Because as we finish out the third chapter, we hear this judge, our God, declare, wait a minute, but now... I am prepared to do something. We know the accusation. We've heard the testimony. We know the verdict and we know the sentence. We stand before our judge in stunned silence. But now this judge says to us, wait a minute. I am prepared to alter your legal standing. I am prepared to radically change, shift your legal status. I am prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent, and I am prepared to change the sentence from death to life. And here's how this is going to work. I am prepared to justify you, declare you righteous instead of unrighteous, 
and it will be by grace alone. It will be my gift to you. And it will be through faith alone. You will not contribute anything. You will simply receive it. And it will be in Christ, my son alone, whom I have displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Great news. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The trial is over. It is ended. Are you using your sanctified imagination? Stay with me. We're exiting the courtroom. And so picture in your mind's eye this huge, enormous building of stone with those stone pillars in front of it. And we're exiting this building and we make our way down the staircase in front of the building. And Paul, who has acted as the prosecuting attorney, attorney he exits the building He's making his way, he's, he's a, he strikes a solitary figure as he makes his way down these stairs, and he's looking over some of his notes, and he's fumbling with his briefcase or whatever he would have carried back in that day, and he just looks up, and something catches his attention out of the corner of his eye. Over there at the bottom of the stairs, there is a group of Jews, and they're all staring at him. They're waiting for him. He thinks to himself, oh, bother, here we go. How can, how can I possibly avoid this? I won't avoid it. I'll go right over and see what it is they want. They confront him. Some are annoyed. Some are confused. Some are startled. But basically, as he cuts his way through the chaos and all these voices directed toward him, he ascertains what the problem is. And it's simply this. Paul, what you said in there and what happened in there we don't get it. And Paul, here's why we don't get it. It isn't what our forefathers believed. Nor is it what our scriptures teach. So how could you possibly, how could you possibly in a million years expect us to accept it? We understood. We heard the accusation we heard the testimony, we heard the verdict, we heard the sentence, and then we heard this talk of justification. Yes, I suppose it sounds wonderful, but here's our dilemma, Paul. You're asking us to accept something. Again, notice the twofold emphasis. You're asking us to accept something that our forefathers did not believe. And you're asking us to accept something that our scriptures do not teach. Paul is quick to respond. Hold on. Just back up enough. Here, I, I get what you're saying, and you're making this twofold charge that what I have said is contrary to what your forefathers believed and is contrary to what your, actually our forefathers, because I'm Jewish too, what our forefathers believed and what our scriptures teach. Now, let me state this and let me state it plainly. Let me speak slowly and let me proclaim it unequivocally. The opposite is actually true. What I have declared is exactly what your forefathers believed. And it is precisely what your scriptures teach. You don't believe me? Well, let's call two friends over to join us in this conversation. The first, perhaps you've heard of him. His name is Abraham. 
the greatest of your fathers. Let's call him over and see what he has to say about this subject. The second, let's call David over. The greatest of your kings. There you have the greatest of our fathers, Abraham. You have the greatest of our kings, David. Let's call them over. Let's inquire of them. And let's find out what it was they really believed and how they understood the scriptures. Do you understand what he is doing? He is basically forcing them to go back and consider he is appealing to two of the preeminent figures in their history, Abraham and David, their greatest father and their greatest king. And he is going to appeal to a scripture, Genesis and Psalms, in relation to each of these. And he is going to do so in order to silence this false charge, this false accusation Paul, what you're teaching is contrary to what our fathers believed and contrary to what our scriptures teach. He is forcing them to reckon with this so that they won't be able, there will be no wiggle room left. He is going to force them to come to this understanding. He's basically saying to them, look, are you better than your forefathers? Are you holier than your forefathers? Are you wiser than your forefathers? If he can force them to take an objective look at Abraham and David and these two passages of Scripture attached to them, he will force them to acknowledge that everything they have just heard is perfectly consistent. As a matter of fact, everything they have just heard in the first three chapters is what their fathers believed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It is what their Scriptures teach. No wiggle room. We do that kind of thing all the time, don't we? I remember an incident in uh, our experience, Allison and, and me. We were, oh, this is going back almost 23 years ago now. And we were traveling to the country of Angola for a, for a work project, a work term. And before heading to the country of Angola in southwest Africa, uh, we discovered there was a group of Canadians there with whom we would be working. And we did not know them, never met them, knew nothing about them. They had never met us, obviously knew nothing about us. Uh, someone informed them that this couple, young couple from Canada, would be coming and joining them and working with them. And uh, so they got the letter or the phone call or whatever it was. Uh, this couple, Stephen and Allison, Y-U-I-L-L-E. No one had the foggiest notion how to pronounce our surname. One of them, a Dr. Collins, convinced everyone else that we were actually from Quebec. And our last name was French, pronounced Yui. So we were Etienne and Alison Yui. He convinced everyone that this was this couple coming to work with them. So we get off the plane and we meet some of these nice Canadians far off in Angola. And they're referring to us as Stephen and Alison Yui. Who? It's Stephen and Allison Yule. Are you sure? We thought it was UE. They're now left with a choice, aren't they? Either they can acknowledge, well, we're wrong. We've now heard it from the horse's mouth. We're wrong. We have been misinformed. Therefore, we will change our opinion on the matter, and we will now begin to refer to this couple as Yule. Or they could choose to do what? Well, I don't think this couple knows what they're talking about. 
I don't think this couple really knows how to pronounce their last name. And they could have looked silly by continuing to insist upon calling us UE. That's what Paul is doing here. He's making them look silly. Look, you're, you're challenging. You're, you're waiting for me out here. This mob, and you're all in a tizzy, a frenzy. Paul, it's not what our forefathers believed. Paul, it's not what our, teach, our scriptures teach. Paul says, yes, it is. Let's go back and hear from Abraham, the greatest father. Let's go back and hear from David, the greatest king. Let's turn to those scriptures. And once you have heard what I have to say, you're going to be left with a choice. Either you can acknowledge you've been wrong. I mean, you have been sorely mistaken. And you can understand and you can acknowledge that what I am saying is true. Change your mind, change your opinion and accept it. Or you can choose to continue to look silly, downright ridiculous by charging me for teaching something contrary to the fathers, contrary to the scriptures, which in actual fact is perfectly consistent with both. That's what he does. He begins with a question. This gets him off on the right foot. Verse 1. What then, therefore, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? And so he numbers himself with the Jews, our forefather according to the flesh. Okay, we're all Jews here, he's saying. I acknowledge that. And so Abraham, yes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob, yes, the tribe of Israel, we're all descendants, we're all Jews. Okay, let's, let's, let's think about Abraham then. You're struggling, you're tripping over my doctrine of justification, the first three chapters, you're having a hard time computing it. Okay, let's, let's proceed slowly here. Then let's go back to Abraham, and let's ask ourselves, let's consider what we, was gained by Abraham. In other words, here's the question. Was Abraham justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as I have just described? Or was Abraham justified as you think he was justified according to the works of the law? Which is it? Are you with it? With me? That's the question. And then he moves on into verses two and three, and we have the answer stated. He answers his own question. Verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, if, he's speaking hypothetically, he has something to boast about. He'd raise that issue of boasting at the end of chapter 3. That look, if it is by, by, by works, if God's justification of us, whereby he changes the verdict from guilty to innocent, from, from, and the sentence from death to life, if, if that act of justification is dependent upon something we do, then guess what? We do have something to boast about. Well, is that how Abraham was justified? Did God justify Abraham by works? Did Abraham have something to boast about? Look what he says right at the end of verse 2. But not before God. No, he didn't. And why? He now cinches his argument, still in verse 3, the statement of his, of his answer, by quoting from the Old Testament. For what does the Scripture say? Please look, is what he's saying to them. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is justification by grace alone. It was God's gift to Abraham. God treated Abraham not as he was. He treated Abraham as though he were righteous. That is a counted 
reckoned, imputed, alien righteousness. It was not Abraham's righteousness. It was justification by grace alone. How? Through faith alone. Abraham believed God. In Christ alone. In Christ alone? Yes. Hear what Christ himself proclaims in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What did Abraham understand? To what extent did he grasp the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't know. But we know at the very least he knew something of the promise of God. He knew something of his need for atonement. He knew that he required God to display someone publicly as a propitiation in his blood on his behalf that he might reckon this alien righteousness to him whereby he could stand in God's sight. To what extent and to what depth and to what height we do not know. But Abraham believed whatever it was that was available to him. And Abraham was justified by grace alone. Alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the answer stated. And then Paul moves on into verses 4 and 5. The answer explained. And basically, all he does in verses 4 and 5 is he contrasts two men. Man number 1, verse 4. Put him right over here. You can see him. Now to the one who works. So here's man number 1. The one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So here's a man who works hard. Here's a man who puts in 40, 50, 60, 70 hours in a work week. He arrives at the end of the work week and his employer gives him his wage. He might say, thank you, fine, just being courteous. But he does not receive that payment as a gift of grace. He receives it as what? His wages do. He's earned it. He's merited it. He has worked for it. So here's man number one. When we work for something and we receive something, it is a payment. It is deserved. Now jump over here, verse five. Here's man number two. He's the opposite. To the one who does not work. He doesn't work. He's not doing anything. But he receives something externally. Well, he hasn't earned it. He certainly doesn't merit it. It's not being given to him as a wage in response to something he has done, service rendered. It is simply being given to him as a gift. That is how Abraham was justified. He was justified by grace alone through faith, not according to his works, but through faith, whereby he received this gift of righteousness in Christ Jesus. And then, fourthly, he moves into verses 6 through 8, and we have the answer, supported, defended, developed, if you like. Paul could have ended it with Abraham, but what does he do in verse 6 as he develops and supports his main answer? He now appeals to? A second individual from history, David. Look, just as the outset of verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. David spoke about that? Apart from works. 
And Paul quotes from the book of Psalms, chapter 32. We have the citation right there in verses 7 and 8. These are David's words. Threefold description of the blessed man. Blessed are those, here's the first description, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. They are removed. Here's the second description. Blessed are those, right at the end of verse 7, whose sins are forgiven. Covered, if I remember correctly, the only place this verb is used, this, this term is used in the New Testament, hidden from view. The third description, verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's not Paul writing. That is David writing. David was justified by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And he gives this beautiful description of how this leads to blessedness. Here is the blessedness, blessed man. Remember the context of Psalm 32. It was David's terrible sin against God. And as he reflects on that sin, David, an adulterer and a murderer, how could he possibly stand before a holy God? What hope did David ever have of being justified by the works of the law? What hope did that man ever have under heaven of doing anything that pleased God, somehow merited his favor? He did not. David's pillow, the pillow David slept on at night, was the doctrine of justification. The cloak with which David covered himself during the day was the doctrine of justification. David's daily delight was this truth that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the blessed man. Paul sums it all up at the end of verse 6. The blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work. Do you see what he is doing in these verses? Oh, the brilliance of the man. Even more significantly, the brilliance of the Holy Spirit who inspired the man. He is shutting every mouth. He knows how the Jews think because he is a Jew. This is not anti-Semitic. He loves his fellow countrymen. He longs for the salvation of his fellow countrymen. Later in chapter 10, he says, I'd be willing to be accursed for the salvation of my fellow countrymen. He wants them to understand the truth. And he knows exactly how they're thinking. Again, using our imagination as he exits that courtroom and they confront him. Paul, that's just a bunch of gibberish. It is not what our forefathers believed. It is not what our scriptures teach. And in a few simple sentences, he blows them away and responds and says, my friends, the exact opposite is true. In the first three chapters, in effect, this is what he's saying, my friends, in the first three chapters, I have not said anything that our forefathers did not believe. And I have not said anything that our scriptures do not teach. I am simply by the Spirit of God proclaiming it with clarity now that the promised Savior has come. And what I am, you are in the wrong, my beloved countrymen. You are in the wrong and you are so confused, tripping over Christ. No, not contrary, not antithetical to Abraham, David, not antithetical to the scriptures. I've just appealed to the book of Genesis. I've just appealed to the book of Psalms. And I have demonstrated that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Five points of application. Here they are. Number one, justification, obviously, is the only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. Flip in your Bibles back to chapter one. Turn over, turn back, chapter one. And look at what Paul says in the first two verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Where do we learn of this promise concerning the gospel? In the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Look, still in chapter 1 at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. There's the doctrine of justification. Where does Paul go to prove it, to buttress his argument? He quotes from the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Turn back to chapter 3. And look at what he says there in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, you know, in Christ. Christ has come. It has now been manifested apart from the law. Although what? The law and the prophets. That's simply a synonym for the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. And look, lastly, still in chapter 3, verse 25, where we were a couple of Sundays ago, God put Christ forward, verse 25 of chapter 3, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Whose sins? Sins of Abraham. Sins of Isaac. Sins of Jacob, sins of their wives, right? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the sins of Daniel, sins of Ruth, sins of Hagar, the sins of all David, Solomon, all these old sins of Noah, sins of Seth, all these Old Testament saints. God passed over their sins. He demonstrated his forbearance on the basis of what? The doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, in the atoning sacrifice he knew he was coming, in Christ alone, the one whom he displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. There is only one way of salvation. That's important for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is this. We live in a very pluralistic society, do we not? Not so much here in Glen Rose, Texas, but the United States as a whole, definitely a pluralistic society. And a society today which champions the notion that there are many ways to God. Could anything be more antithetical to the truth and this plain spoken reality that no, there is only one way to God. There has only ever been one way to God. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let me give you a second reason why it's very important that we impress upon our minds that justification is the only way of salvation. It's important when it comes to interpretive issues, when it comes to Scripture. I grew up in a tradition in which I believe, rightly or wrongly, I perceive it's what I taught, that in the Bible, people are saved in different ways. I grew up thinking that people in the Old Testament, Israelites before Christ, were actually saved by doing their best as an Israelite, the law, it proved too difficult. 
And so God made it kind of easier by sending Jesus. And now we live in a dispensation of grace. And so, you know, you got to go back into the Old Testament. Well, people were saved that they just did their best according to their conscience. Or people were saved because they did their best according to the law. But now Jesus has come and now the gospel we preach is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is a completely false paradigm. Entirely erroneous. And it can lead to all sorts of problems. There is only one way of salvation. There has only ever been one way of salvation. You go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve. How did God justify Adam? How? There is a promise declared, is there not, in Genesis 3.15. There is a sacrifice offered. Animals are killed. And there is a cloak provided. God clothed Adam and Eve. It is the doctrine of justification. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's a second point of application. Justification is impossible if we insist on working for it. It is impossible, impossible, if we insist on working for it. Many, many years ago, the church I was in at the time, maybe I was 19, 20 years of age, we had a door-to-door ministry on Monday evenings. Several of the men from the church would visit in the community going two-by-two, door-by-door, And we used different methodologies, and one of the methodologies we used was a survey, a very simple survey whereby we'd ask people, what's their church affiliation, do they have a Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And if we got far enough along in the survey, and hoping these would would open a door and provoke and stimulate some discussion, if we got far enough in the survey, the question we eventually came to was this, and you've all heard it before, at least most of you have heard it. You've died, you're now standing before God's tribunal, and the question is this, why would God ever let you into heaven? I kept track. Three most popular answers, not from irreligious people. I can't repeat some of the answers I got to that question. But from so-called religious people, professing Christians, here are the three most popular answers. And I'm guessing if we were to do that survey today, I, I think we would find these are still the three most popular answers. Answer number one was this. I've done my best. That's it. I've done my best. Okay, there's another expression. There's another way to describe that. That is justification by works. That's all that means. The individual says, I've done my best. I've been sincere and I've done my best. That is simply justification by works. It's wrong. Second most popular answer was this. I believe in Christ and I've tried to follow him. That sounds pretty good. I believe in Christ and I've tried to follow him. That's actually justification by faith plus works. I believe in Christ, and I've tried, done my best to follow him. Question number three, and probably the most popular of all, was this. And probably, undoubtedly, would still be today. I believe in Christ with all my heart. What? I believe in Christ with all my heart. Isn't that the right one? No. That is justification by faith as a work. Did you hear that, my friend? That is justification by faith as a work. How many people out there today think they are justified because of their faith? How many in this room, possibly? You think you are justified on account of your faith. My friends, our faith is not the efficient cause of justification. God's grace is the efficient cause. I am justified because of God's grace. 
I am justified on account of Christ's blood. I am justified and I have been painfully cautious and careful to use this word. I am justified through faith. Meaning what? I simply receive it. But that reception of the gift has no merit in and of itself. It is correct. We're going to have to explain this and break it down a little. It is correct to say we are justified by faith. It is correct. But that preposition by can mean a couple of things. By can mean because of or or on account of. And sadly, that is what most people think when they hear that phrase. We are justified by faith, meaning faith is what I do. I no longer have to do the law. That proved too difficult. All I have to do is believe. And on account of my faith, Faith, because of my faith, I'm justified. No, that word by can mean something else. It does mean something else. I'm going to the airport this afternoon, and I'm going to drive by way of Granbury. What does by mean? Simply, I'm going to pass through Granbury. And so when we say we are justified by faith, we do not mean we are justified because of our faith or on account of our faith. We simply mean we are justified through faith. We are justified by grace alone. That is the efficient cause. We are justified in Christ alone. That is the meritorious cause. We are justified through faith alone. That is simply the instrumental cause cause. We simply receive it. I stood with two men, sat with two men many, many moons ago. And the one was living a wretched life, had professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but was just living a wretched life, had always lived a wretched life. He had, he had been at some evangelistic campaign and got, got all excited and filled in a card or walked down the aisle or something. I'm not, I'm not throwing a you know, wet blanket on all of that, but th- that was his experience. And he had made this profession, this decision for Jesus. And, but it, it, yeah, he was the same guy afterward and went on living a wretched life. And uh, this other fellow and I, we were sitting with him. And uh, it was one of the most perplexing conversations I've ever been a part of. Not because of the man who had made the profession of faith and was living a wretched life, but because of the other professing believer. I just wanted to pop him on the nose or something else. Why? Because he was trying to convince this guy he was saved. You know what his argument was? I was there. I saw you make the decision. I saw you choose for Christ. You know what that is? That's justification by faith with all my heart. That is justification that turns faith into a work. I've done something. I have done what is required of me. I have made the decision I filled in the car. I said the prayer the pastor told me to pray. I walked down the aisle. I have made something. And it is that act. It is that decision. It is that choice of my will by which I am now justified. No, it is not. That is turning faith into a work. We are justified by grace alone. Through faith. How many times have I said this? In, through faith alone. In Christ alone, let me repeat it. The grace of God is the efficient cause. This is something God does as a gift, not because of anything in us. The meritorious cause is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who was displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. All we do is receive it. It is through faith. Oh, the Jews never got that. Most American evangelicals today do not get that. Some in this room do not really get that. That there is nothing meritorious in us. What we do, what we say, what we think. Justification is an act of God that we receive through faith. The third lesson is this. Justification doesn't change us. I want you to notice a little phrase all the way back in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Here's the phrase. It was counted. Did you get that word? Counted to him as righteousness. Now into verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not. There's that word again. Counted as a gift, but as his due. Now into verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, here it is again, counted as righteousness. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. Verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I say that word's pretty important. What does it mean? It, has, it simply conveys the idea of treating someone, uh, treating someone as they do not deserve. It conveys treating someone in a way that is not commensurate with the way they have acted. Treating them in a way that is opposite to what they have actually merited. It means treating this person, that counting something to this person, crediting something to a person that they have actually nothing to do with. And so it is taking something, transferring it, crediting, counting, or as the old King James said, imputing to someone else and treating them as though that thing were true of them. They're counted to them. And it's a wonderful reality that justification does not change us. It means to confer a state that was not there before. That is all it is. To confer a state, a condition, a standing before God that was not there before. I gave the illustration last week of Martin Luther's dunghills. Do you remember that? Let me try with another one. Going way back when Allie and I were first married. And uh, I wanted to light the grill outside of our little basement apartment outside. And uh, you know the, the igniter on the grill? It wasn't working. It was broken. No matches in the house. So what do I do? Well, I grab newspaper, turn the burner on on the stove, and put the newspaper on the stove, right? The burner. And poof. And then I made a, a dash for the, for the screen door where the grill was. But the, halfway there, almost to the door, almost made it. The thing burst into flames, almost burnt my hand, dropped it. From the looks on some of your faces, you're shocked, as if you never tried that. <laughs> I, I've learned my lesson. Today, I use a bigger piece of newspaper. But there I dropped this newspaper on the carpet, right there, going out the door. Well, it's, it's a hole in the carpet the size of a grapefruit. The carpet is ruined. What do we do? Beautiful mat. Beautiful place for a little rug. And we threw down that rug in front of the door, and it covered that burned hole in the carpet. And no one who ever came to our house was ever the wiser. 
But if you lift up, I don't know if it's true to this day, but if you're to lift up that rug in that apartment, there is this burned hole. That is the doctrine of justification. Justification. We are not talking about sanctification, brothers and sisters. Again, it is coming in chapter 6. We are talking exclusively of justification, our legal standing before God, and why he actually accepts us, why he actually looks favorably upon us. He does so because we are in Christ. And it is Christ who has obeyed and fulfilled the law. And it is Christ who has paid the penalty for the law. I am justified through faith. And through this faith, I am made one with Christ. Therefore, his payment of the penalty for me having broken the law is now my payment. And his perfect obedience of the law, his righteousness is now counted as my righteousness. It doesn't change me. It is my legal position before a righteous God, whereby he declares me to be righteous rather than unrighteous because I am covered with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification does not change you. Praise God. Sanctification does. We're not there yet. We are dealing with justification. Third point of application is this. Justification is a tremendous cause of joy, hope, peace, assurance, and then just put et cetera, et cetera, dot, dot, dot after that. You could go on and on and on and on. Justification is a tremendous cause of joy, hope, peace, assurance, dot, 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 dot. You want to know my favorite phrase? Whether you want to know or not, you're going to hear it. In these first eight verses, my favorite phrase, it's right there in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but here it is, wait for it, trusts him, that is, trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. You cannot be justified unless you are ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. He does, not he, does not, he does not justify the sanctified. He does not justify the obedient. He does not justify the perfect. He justifies the ungodly. He alters their legal standing in his presence by grace through faith in Christ. Here are these examples. Noah was a drunkard. You remember that incident after the flood? Yet according to Scripture, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his wife Sarah's honor two occasions. Do you remember that? What a rogue! Yet he was called the friend of God. Jacob deceived and deceived and deceived. He was a liar, just a habitual liar. Yet God says, I am the God of Jacob. Moses murdered, yet God says, with him I speak mouth to mouth. David committed adultery, yet God says that he was a man after his own heart. My friends, what is that if it is not the doctrine of justification? God treating these men as though they were what they were not, righteous, by grace, through faith in Christ. David is a particularly pertinent example of this given the context. 
The context of Psalm 32 is his murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. And what does he celebrate as he confesses his sin? There you have it in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, removed. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We referred to this text a couple of weeks ago in the adult Bible class. Here it is again out of 1 Kings 14.8. It makes me stagger whenever I read this. Hear these words. It's God speaking. Just hear these words. David kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes. Either that is the biggest load of gibberish that was ever written, or David was a man justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Did you hear those words? David kept my commandments. I could insert a few names there, some of your names, and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eye. That is what it means to be in Christ. That is what it means to be justified in the sight of God. The Lord Jesus, he declares at Matthew 9, 13, some here perhaps need to hear this. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does he mean? He means simply this. If you think you're righteous, there is nothing I can do for you. Where do we begin? If you actually think you're righteous, if you actually think you got what it takes to stand before a holy God, if you actually think you're doing all right, especially when compared to others who shall remain nameless, there is nothing the Lord Jesus can do for you. He has not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous. He has come to call the guilty. He has come to call sinners. He has come to call those who are weary and heavy laden as a result of the burden of their sin, and are prepared to look to the one in whom alone is found rest, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fifth point of application is this. Justification is, given the text, obviously, the key to blessedness. That's straight out of verses 7 and 8. Actually, back in verse 6, Paul's words, he says, David speaks of the blessing The blessing of who? Who's really blessed here? Oh, the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed, truly blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I can think of no better way of ending today than the way I ended last Sunday. That is by appealing to the example of John Bunyan. Do you remember those of you who were here? John Bunyan working through this text. John Bunyan under deep conviction for sin. Arriving at Romans chapter 3. Making his way into the first few verses of Romans 4. Working through this and this doctrine of justification. Began to imagine what it is. What it means for him. And what it is that God was saying to him in this text. And he penned these words. John Bunyan, sinner, you think that I cannot save you because of your sins. 
but my son is beside me. And I am looking at him, and I will deal with you as I am pleased with him. Now, my friends, understand this. The only way you will ever be accepted by God, and the only way you will ever be assured of God's acceptance of you, is when you heartily say, Lord, do not look at me. Look at Christ, who stands at your right hand, because I have placed all my confidence in him. That, my friends, is the doctrine of justification. Our Father, we intercede this day on behalf of those in our midst who do not know you, who do not know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not know the power of the gospel, who do not know what it is to have sins forgiven certainly do not know what it is to possess the hope of eternal life. And we pray that you might be merciful. We pray that you might pour out your spirit upon them, breaking the hard heart, clearing up the confused mind, and causing them to look to the Lord Jesus, a wonderful Savior, the one in whom you have made bountiful provision for all who believe. Hear our prayers, we ask it, our Father. And receive our thanks for the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name we offer it. Amen.